Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is the Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. I continue reading from my memoir, Lost Rites, Leaving Churchland. In this episode, my parish of St. Stephen's began to grow in depth and in breadth, as if a curse had been broken, a shroud lifted. It hadn't felt heavy, exactly, but we had been drifting along on the strength of our potential. We had been waiting for something. Now, it was time to cash in that potential for the real work that was required of us. So, rolling up our sleeves, this is Chapter 13, Part 2. We gathered silently, church members and community members alike, settling on chairs that had been arranged in a small circle up in the sanctuary. A wash of blue light from the rose window over the rear balcony cast an even-tide glow over the entire room. A candle was lit at the center of the circle. A passage of scripture, or perhaps an inspirational poem, was read. A reflection was offered on the practice of meditation and its application to our daily lives. Then we got down to business. The leader explained again the simple approach we were advocating. Sit in an upright position, with both feet flat on the floor. Take several cleansing breaths, breathing all the way out. Focus on a mantra, or on the burning candle, or on any simple repetitive task that distracts the mind just enough to park it. Don't fight distractions. Instead, acknowledge them and let them go. Then we sank into a 20-minute meditative sit. As we quietened ourselves, the sanctuary seemed to come alive with a sacred presence. Was it a visitation of angels, or merely the tuning of our senses to something already there? We breathed out. We let everything go, even the siren rushing past the door and the snoring of our neighbor sitting next to us. We entered the silence. We drifted on a sea of unconsciousness deeper than sleep, yet, curiously, we were more alert than when wakeful. It was as if, in our stillness, we were alive to everything, inside and out. We lost track of time. Then, from somewhere far away, the timekeeper rang the bell. We returned, wondering where we'd been. The leader might ask for comments or engage in a conversation about the technical aspects of what we'd just been doing, or 
we might just sit in silence, lingering, basking in the peacefulness until it was time to leave. Rising, we nodded or whispered our farewells and went out into the night. St. Stephen's inner life was deepening. We were opening ourselves to the subtle movements of the Spirit. At the same time, its outer life was blossoming. We were opening ourselves to the needs of the world. Was there a connection? In our outreach work, we were becoming smarter about the endless procession to our door, the constant requests for handouts, for food vouchers, for gas money. We had inadequate resources to respond to the privation presenting itself to us every day. We were sometimes scammed. We were ill-equipped to parse real needs from presenting needs. The ask might be for rent money when the greater need was for better decision-making. We felt that the small temporary fixes we were applying were not, in reality, making much of a difference. We decided only to meet a need if doing so would be a game-changer, not a band-aid. We began redirecting requests for help to local social service agencies. They were trained to do the intake and knew exactly where to send people for housing or food or for any number of resources. But we sought a role we could still play ourselves. We asked the agencies what it was they were not able to provide for their clients. We were surprised by what they told us transportation. The agencies shared their stories about getting clients to the point where they could apply for a job, only to see it all unravel when the person couldn't afford the bus fare to get there. So we made that our focus. We began receiving referrals back from the agencies, providing bus tickets, sometimes even booking a flight when a client needed to move to a job up in Fort McMurray or return home to the Maritimes for the burial of a family member. Our outreach spread further. For years, we had been supporting Emmanuel Guterra, a young Anglican priest in Rwanda, beginning with his divinity studies. But after he was ordained, he found himself spending more and more time counseling and supporting the survivors of the 1994 genocide and their children, he wanted the training and the credentials to leave parish ministry to do this other work full-time. We joined with the National Church's World Mission Department to bring Emmanuel to Canada. He enrolled in a doctoral degree program at St. Stephen's College at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, specializing in trauma counseling. It was a correspondence program but it required Emmanuel to come once a year for six weeks of coursework. When he came, Emmanuel would spend time with Jean and me and become better known in the parish. The friendship deepened. In 2016, Jean and I traveled to Rwanda to meet Emmanuel's wife and children and to see firsthand the good work he had begun there. As we got better at our various outreach ministries, the wider community noticed in from the cold had already put us on the city's radar, but when we screened topical films or provided a venue for homegrown concerts or even just displayed thought-provoking messages on our outdoor sign, we were becoming an inspiration to the neighborhood, making it a better community, a better city, a better world. But the more we did for others, the more we became aware of our limitations 
due mainly to our aging buildings. Not only was the cost of utilities and repairs killing us, the space itself was inaccessible, unwelcoming, and inflexible. To the neighborhood, from the outside, the building felt like a fortress, keeping people out. To us, on the inside, it felt like we were protecting something. Our worship space, filled with pews, permitted worship and little else, and then only worship of a certain kind, everyone sitting in rows, facing forward. Both our worship and our outreach were constrained, not by the size of our building, but by how we could use it. It was becoming clear that a major building project was unavoidable. Adopting the rallying cry, doing nothing is not an option, we committed ourselves to renovating the church and opening our doors just as wide as we could to see who would come in. A fire marshal would have thrown a fit. Almost 200 people crammed themselves into the lower memorial hall next to the church. They clogged the hallways and spilled up the stairwells. When we lit the processional torches, if anyone's hair had caught fire, we all would have burned to a crisp. The lower hall had been serviceable while the renovations were taking place up in the church. The summer months helped when attendance thinned out a bit. But it was a tight arrangement, with rows of chairs drawn close on three sides to the portable altar and lectern. It was workable, and not altogether unpleasant, as we squeezed ourselves into that makeshift space. We were getting to know one another again, and better for the proximity. But we were ready now, like a cup that runneth over, to flow up into the new space, which most parishioners had never seen. The new elevator had been installed before our eyes, albeit behind security barriers and sheets of heavy-duty plastic. The new ramp from the street to the office doors was already in use, but the church itself had been off-limits while workers came and went, building the apron stage, laying the flooring, painting over the dark wood paneling, installing overhead theater lighting. Few had seen this stunning new altar, Ambo and font we commissioned from a pair of young artists, neither of them churchgoers. Now with fanfare and mounting excitement, all would be revealed to the crush of church members, friends, and neighbors. There's nothing like a building project to focus a church's energy. Suddenly, priorities become clear and trivialities fall away. I knew this because of my experience at St. Philip's in Unionville. I hoped something similar would happen at St. Stephen's, a church with a long history of community service. Would this renovation help remind us of who we were and why we were here? A team of parish leaders drew up plans for our dream church. We were guided by a desire to connect meaningfully with the neighborhood. We focused on the arts, for which there was a dearth of affordable and available space in the city. We were art lovers ourselves. So this represented common ground that should allay any fears that we just wanted to evangelize the public or trick them into coming to church. We weren't that kind of congregation. We had already made our own forays into the art world. 
Radio Nights was a performing arts series we hosted that featured plays by local playwrights read dramatically by professional actors. Our chancel area was too fixed, crammed as it was with choir stalls, to provide space for a full theatrical performance, but that had an upside. The actors didn't have to do weeks of rehearsal for a single performance because they were seated on stools in the spotlight reading from scripts. We charged at the door so everyone got paid, and while it never made money for the church, it established us as a venue for the performing arts in Calgary. Midtown Mosaic was an annual art show we staged ourselves. Through the weekend, arts and crafts took over the body of the church. We invited 20 or 25 artists, held fundraising auctions, and featured a wine bar and live music at the gala opening on the Friday evening. It was thrilling to survey the church from the balcony. Art was everywhere. It filled the sanctuary. It lined the side chapel. It ran up and down the aisles. It even rested atop sheets of plywood laid flat across the backs of pews. The public turned out in droves, but the space was woefully inadequate to its new purpose. You can't properly display artwork on the top of pews. So the new church would have to be accessible to all and adaptable to many new purposes. Replacing the pews with chairs would open up the space to allow not only for art shows, but also for theater and dance, banquets even. Removing the choir stalls up at the front would mean the chancel itself could become a stage. This would provide an exciting array of possibilities for worship as well. Chairs could be arranged any way we wanted, around the altar in a circle, in rows facing each other the way they are in college chapels and monasteries, or conventionally facing forward. In fact, the three pivotal stations of worship, the altar, the font, and the ambo, which is a combination pulpit and lectern all in one, could be positioned anywhere we chose. Overhead theater lighting could highlight any point in the room where something was happening, whether for liturgical celebrations or for choral concerts. When we did a feasibility study, our dream blue skied at a cool $4.5 million. Realistically, we could raise about a quarter of that. So the office wing would have to wait, with its snagged and sickly orange carpeting, as would the Memorial Hall built in 1924 with its original boiler. But in the meantime, we could partition the upper hall to create affordable artists' studios, which is what we did. Even before the renovations were complete, the old building was breathing new life into the congregation and into the surrounding community. When the day came and we were finally able to return to the church, we moved together from the darkness of the basement up and out into the light of our new sanctuary. People gasped, slack-jawed, as they entered the space. The church revealed itself to us in the sun-drenched rainbow colors of the stained-glass windows, as if we were seeing them for the first time. The frontispiece of the old altar had been fitted into the oak paneling up in the sanctuary, rooting us in our history. Circular rows of chairs opened us up to one another, rather than separating us. Light flooded down upon the new furnishings with their bold, curvaceous lines, as if they were alive. And beneath our feet, 
the swirls of a massive labyrinth were set into the floor, inviting us to walk deeper in our spiritual journey. We were home again, but to a place we'd never been before. It was an exciting time. It was also exhausting. My regular pastoral duties were overtaken by all the administrative demands of creating and occupying our new space. But somehow, through it all, I never felt my feet leave the ground. There was too much in my daily life and ministry that bound me to the people of the parish, who found fellowship with one another in the work we did together, and to the people of the city, who found solace in the sacred space we had created with them in mind. In the West, springtime is not a gradual creeping. It's not even a season. It's a wild overnight explosion. You have about a day and a half to enjoy it, before you have to start thinking about controlling the weeds and pruning the lilacs and cutting the lawn. That's how furiously spring arrives here when it finally does. The new St. Stephen's opened in November of 2013. By springtime, it was buzzing with use. With concerts and workshops and art shows, just ask Lynn, our parish administrator at the time, it was becoming a problem to book meetings and events for ourselves. We had opened our doors to the community, and the community had come in. Now we all had to learn how to share. We turned our attention to our own use of the space, especially for worship. Week to week, the setup defaulted to curved rows of chairs facing forward, with the altar at the front and the choir seated behind it, facing the congregation. The effect was that of a circle, with the altar at the hub. But each new liturgical season provided other intriguing possibilities. My favorite was the evolution of the space during Holy Week, from Palm Sunday to Easter. Palm Sunday was set up with rows of chairs facing forward to allow for a broad center aisle that was necessary for our grand procession around the church, with the choir singing and children joining in waving palm branches to reenact Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Then, to create a more intimate gathering for Monday Thursday, commemorating the Last Supper with Jesus and his disciples huddled together in the upper room, we moved the altar right down into the middle of the space, setting it at the heart of the labyrinth. A spotlight framed it from above, and the chairs encircled it, the peripheral spaces left in shadowy darkness. The next day, Good Friday, the chairs remained in a circle, but the altar was replaced by a hooded cross. We meditated upon the crucifixion by way of a dramatic reading of the Passion and a moving musical setting performed by the choir. For the great vigil on Saturday evening and the Easter services on Sunday morning, the circle opened up at one end to create rows that faced each other across a broad aisle, an arrangement that permitted the three defining church appointments, the font, the ambo, and the altar, to be aligned in the middle of the assembly. It felt like we had moved, physically and spiritually, from death to resurrection. So far, so good. None of this would have rocked anyone's boat. 
except to inspire envy in churches that still had their pews fixed to the floor. But these changes soon led to others. For years, it had bothered me that in liberal churches such as our own, we preached gender inclusivity and nonviolence as natural corollaries of the gospel. But each Sunday, we read scripture readings that identified God exclusively as a male, as a warlord, actually, through whom we sometimes sought vengeance upon our enemies, asking God in one memorable verse to dash the heads of their infants upon the rocks. Back in 2009, I had launched an ambitious project to create new renderings of the Bible readings. These would retain the original essence while reflecting modern sensibilities about inclusivity and nonviolence, principles we had learned from the Bible itself. There had been several such attempts back in the 1980s and 90s, but by the early 2000s, those versions had vanished without a trace. The only published inclusive language Bible was the work of a renegade group of Catholic priests called Priests for Equality, who offered an entirely new translation of the Bible called the Inclusive Bible. I ordered a copy. Translation is a tricky business. Too much caution, and the Bible sounds hardly changed at all, like the ubiquitous New Revised Standard Version most mainline churches already used, but too little caution, and the words become distractingly clunky and colloquial, as was the case with the Inclusive Bible. You know something's been lost when marketplaces become malls, when on their hands they shall bear you up becomes they'll carry you in their hands, or when the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, is rendered Adonai, you are my shepherd, I want nothing more. But the new translation did suggest a way forward. I would be the first to admit that I am neither a biblical scholar nor, even more certainly, a linguist. Greek was my lowest mark at university. But what I read in the Inclusive Bible seemed both doable and justifiable. Traditionally, references to God in the Psalms had been translated as the Lord, as if speaking about God. But the Inclusive Bible rendered those verses as a prayer, as if speaking to God. The Lord became simply you. The issue of gender inclusivity was resolved in an instant. At the same time, the reading became more personal, as the psalmists had intended. I got to work on the readings that populate the three-year lectionary used by most mainline denominations, comparing various English translations but falling back on the Inclusive Bible, I began tweaking the readings assigned for each week. I took note of how the readings went over on Sunday, especially the Psalms which the congregation read aloud. If we stumbled over words, I went home and tweaked them some more. The violent verses I discovered could be re-rendered without diminishing the strong human emotion attached to them. Rather than hating those who don't abide God's law, for instance, We could just as easily say, we cannot abide them. A strategy we all employ with people who bother us. We avoid them. The tweaking went on through three revolutions of the lectionary, a period of almost ten years. In its final stages, I appointed an editorial board, a committee of some of the most literate members of my parish, to proofread the draft 
and correct and refine the texts even further. Having used the New Scripture readings weekly for almost a decade experimentally, on my last Sunday at St. Stephen's, the board made a formal presentation of the new renderings to the parish. The tome filled four massive binders. It was a monumental task, and, if I may say, a major accomplishment. We felt proud of our work, though we couldn't celebrate it openly. We weren't allowed to make those changes, not without the bishop's permission. Then again, we weren't asking. It just made good sense. We took the Christian tradition and found ways of making it ring true to modern ears. This had been my training, and I thought it was supposed to be my job. I was about to be proved wrong. I've been reading from Lost Rites, Leaving Churchland. Thank you for accompanying me on this journey. Perhaps something in this chapter has resonated with your own experience, whether or not it has to do with the church. The spiritual journey is replete with seasons, a time to wait and a time to act, a time to plant and a time to reap. Share your own story. You can leave a post on the Facebook group, The Mystic Cave, or write to me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. Our vision at St. Stephen's kept growing, and our ministry kept expanding. But in our diocese, the vision was narrowing and the ministry shrinking. Would it be long before we'd be asserting ourselves against forces that wanted to make us less than who we were? We'll find out. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. But it's too late.